2: Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, January 21st. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, less than a month into the 2020 legislative session, there is unrest in the state house between the speaker and a group of retired lawmakers. Then the Mississippi Supreme Court upholds a 12 year sentence for contraband cell phones. Plus, the William Winter Institute's Day of Racial Healing. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Four freshman members of the Mississippi House might have to give up their legislative seats if they continue to serve and receive state retirement. A new regulation adopted by PERS, the Public Employees Retirement System, allows retirees to collect their pensions while serving in the legislature. The regulation change is based on an opinion written by then Attorney General Jim Hood. But House Speaker Philip Gunn has advised the House Management Committee to disregard the new PERS regulation over questions of statute. Representative Billy Andrews of Lamar County is one of the four freshman lawmakers. He tells MPB's Michael Guidry the AG opinion influenced his decision to run for office.
3: Well, the opinion came down in late 2018. PERS adopted a proposed regulation in April of 2019 prior to the election. Okay. Uh, and submitted the matter to the Internal Revenue Service to make sure it didn't violate the federal laws that would jeopardize the PERS-exempt status. Uh, Based on that landscape, I and several others who were retirees, believing that it would not be an issue, qualified and ran for office, and we were elected by our constituents knowing that we were PERS and uh, retirees. Then IRS notified PERS in early December, I think it was, that they were going to issue a favorable ruling. That favorable ruling has not been received in writing yet. and But based on that notification, PERS adopted a final regulation, uh, which is attached to that memorandum I sent to Speaker in the membership, and you have a copy of it. Uh, So, yes, it was discussed, or everyone believed that it wouldn't be an issue. Philip Gunn, I began asking Philip Gunn in September to let's deal with the issue with the management committee, and he basically postponed us, giving us an answer until last Friday, at which time he told us he didn't agree with the opinion, he thought it was politically motivated, and that he was not going to support uh, the adoption of any uh, policy of the House that would permit us to draw a, poor, a part of our pay.
4: How much did the the regulation, the PERS regulation, and and the the AG opinion influence your decision to run?
3: I wouldn't have ever even thought about running unless it, I could have run and and retained my PERS benefits. I've been I've been a. Uh, county elected official since 2015, drawing my PERS benefits, and serving, and drawing only part of the county pay for county judge. So I would not have even considered it um, had that not been the case.
4: What do you anticipate moving forward? What actions are you, um, and is is this a collective effort uh, among you and the the members you mentioned in your in your memorandum? Uh, what, yes, pro- what what steps are you taking going forward?
3: Well, we've asked, as you read the memorandum, we've asked the Speaker for a management committee meeting to vote up or down. Will they adopt a purse policy? I'm not naive enough to believe that if Philip Gunn's opposed to it, that I'm going to be able to get a positive vote from that, but I, I at least want to give that an opportunity. Then, of course, we have several other options that, that we, we're exploring, including filing suit. Uh, possibly introducing a house resolution having the whole house uh, say that we should adopt a policy but again that would have to get out of rules committee and if philip Gunn continues to uh, oppose that i'm not sure that we'd be able to accomplish that but there are several options that we're considering
4: what benefits do you believe retired uh, public employees bring to the legislature
3: well, they bring their life experience. They bring bring the experience experiences in the government employment. They bring to the table some knowledge of whatever field they might have been employed in. That would be uh, over and beyond that of someone that didn't serve as a public employee. And uh, some perceive this, and you don't have to ask the speaker and anybody else that serves, you know, why they oppose it to get their own views. But some. Some perceive it is because they don't want to have retired public employees running against them. Legal officer of this state has said what we're doing is permissible and that PERS, that PERS would not have adopted a regulation allowing it had it not been statutory, statutorily allowed and not permissible under the existing law. And it's just incomprehensible for me to believe that uh, Philip Gunn or anybody else would oppose this effort. Philip told me personally he thought it was, Hood was politically motivated. Well, it didn't work. He got four new Republican members elected to the House. So, I mean, that's a, that's a shallow argument. Uh, it's just an injustice and an effort to keep retired people from serving in the legislature.
2: Republican, Billy Andrews, represents House District 87. Representative Jason White of Holmes County is the Speaker pro tempore. He tells MPB's Desiree Fraser he believes the law is clear, that elected officials cannot serve in the legislature and draw state retirement.
1: These four individuals can serve in the legislature today. They've been sworn in and they are serving. They're voting on the floor just like everybody else. They just can't continue to draw their retirement benefits because the statute clearly does not allow that says it plain at some point in time there there became some concern from a local official the local officials were saying we're having trouble finding people to run for and fill these offices the legislature i was not here then it was way before my time the legislature changed the statute to allow an exception and it's in the statute for local elected city and county officials so that's in the statute i mean we have lots of Chancery clerks and, and other individuals in elected county and city government who collect their retirement and continue to serve and collect 25% of their high for, of their um, retirement compensation. In other words, what the law says is let's say a person's retirement is $100,000, just for the sake of the easy math. All right. So they're getting retirement benefits of $100,000 a year. What the law says, they can come back and work. They just can't earn more than $25,000 in whatever it is and continue to draw their benefit. They can draw their full benefits. They can continue to work on a part-time basis, but they can't draw more than $25,000 in new earned income from that job and keep drawing their retirement as well. Can they serve in the legislature? No, they cannot. That's what I'm telling you. The, the statute has always clearly excluded them. In 85, the legislature went back and tweaked the law to allow, lo- and it says, local city and county officials. Um, an exception was made, and then folks began doing that. It was never, and since that time, the Attorney General has issued opinions that clearly said, you cannot do this. Now, for whatever reason, last year, the Attorney General decided to change his opinion and say that you can. You'd have to ask him why he changed His opinion, but he did, and he issued opinion that said, "Well, we know what the statute says, but that's really not what it means." Attorney general doesn't have the authority to change state law.
5: And so, the opinion that you and the House Speaker have is that.
1: Speaker of the House can certainly speak for himself and, and articulate his position. What I was requested to do, as Speaker Pro Tem, I'm chairman of the Management Committee, and the Management Committee. One of their duties of the management committee, we don't handle bills and legislation. We handle the day-to-day working affairs of the House of Representatives. The letter that I'm sure you've seen that these four retirees have have issued or public statement, um, they are requesting that the management committee adopt, that the House adopt a policy through the management committee that would allow them to draw their PERS benefits and serve in the legislature. The problem with that is, if we can't adopt a policy in the House that is contrary to state statute. We are the lawmakers. That's not even considering the double-dipping aspect. It, 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 it looks like we as representatives are voting ourselves this special benefit that would allow all of us to draw our retirement, continue to serve, and get paid in the legislature. We have members on the House floor now who are eligible for state retirement. They have more than 25 years service. I think Representative Watson is, you'll have to ask him about the years. I'm not going to date him, but he's got a lot. Tommy Reynolds, Robert Johnson, lots of folks. And if you remember, Robert Johnson um, talked about retiring back in December. He ended up maybe doing it or not doing it. I don't know. But he didn't have the break in service, so this was not even going to be an issue. But we have lots of people on the House floor who have their years of service. What do we tell those people? You can't draw your retirement because you you're not going to be able to get a 90-day break in service. Are a bunch of members going to start resigning their seat, waiting 90 days, and then running to try to get the seat back so that they can draw their retirement? It it just the optics are bad. I don't think the taxpayers expect us to be up here drawing a full retirement and getting pay to be in the legislature.
2: Republican Jason White represents House District 48. Coming up, the Mississippi Supreme Court upholds a 12-year sentence for contraband cell phones. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
1: This is MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is our mission.
2: This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. The Mississippi Supreme Court's confirmation of a 12-year prison sentence for an African-American man who carried his mobile phone into a county jail cell is shining further light on the need for sentencing reform. Willie Nash was given the 12-year sentence by a trial judge in August of 2018. A 2012 Mississippi law sets a sentencing range of 3 to 15 years for inmates found with deadly weapons, cell phones, or components of cell phones in state jails and prisons. Cliff Johnson, director of the MacArthur Justice Center at the University of Mississippi, tells our Michael Guidry the court's decision highlights the need to look at the prison crisis holistically.
5: Like a lot of people, my attention has been focused on the recent prison crisis and in the midst of conference calls with lawyers and research regarding conditions of confinement, uh, litigation possibilities... We had someone email me, basically said, You're not going to believe this. Look at this case. I had no knowledge of it prior to that time. I read the opinion, and I, I just couldn't uh, help but immediately think about how connected that sentence is to these larger issues we keep talking about in, in the wake of these recent um, murders in our prisons. You know, these people are stuck in jail for a very long time in these terrible conditions, and then violence breaks out. So, so I was troubled by what happened at the trial court level in particular with the aggressive, very aggressive approach taken by the prosecutor and the, the judge's um, participation in that as well at the trial court level.
4: It was a unanimous ruling uh, that upheld the sentence, but... There seemed to be lots of dissent within the language of the ruling. Uh, justice Leslie King, for instance, said that this case seems to demonstrate a failure of our criminal justice system on multiple levels. What do you extract from that?
5: So I think it's important to understand what the Supreme Court said. What the Mississippi Supreme Court said is basically, look, the statute authorizes the judge to sentence someone between 3 and 15 years. Because this sentence was 12 years, it's within the range, and so it's hard for us to say that it's cruel, and unusual, excessive, disproportionate. I think what the justices, as I read between the lines, recognized was that this is a really aggressive use of that authority given by the legislature, which which focuses, focuses us on the importance of prosecutorial discretion in our criminal justice system. So So just because the legislature gives you the option of using a bazooka doesn't mean you have to fire the bazooka. You know, sometimes you take the 3 to 15 range and you say, you know, this is three years is
4: plenty. In in looking at the prison reform argument, and, and you mentioned all the stuff that's going on with that, uh, it seems that the common ground that both progressive and conservative think tanks have regarding prison reform is first taking a look at our sentencing statutes. Do you agree that that's maybe a good place to start?
5: Look, we've got people serving sentences 60 years, 40 years, 20 years, um, that I think are grossly excessive. And I think that we have to look closely at um, a sentencing structure that serves the interest of deterrence, both general t- deterrence um, for the, so that the public knows that people are going to take crime seriously, specific deterrence for the individuals involved in the conduct. But we also have to focus on rehabilitation. We have to make smart decisions about the economics of a correction system and what you can actually afford to do, and using those resources wisely, um, look at um, important underlying issues around um, the availability in our local communities of the kind of mental health services, drug and alcohol treatment services, job opportunities and housing that is going to really get to the heart of the root causes of behavior. So I think we talk about sentencing because it's smart, but we also have to talk about uh, keeping people out of jail on the front end and, and I think those are they're very much related. One of the things that's interesting to note is that Mississippi has the 16th lowest violent crime rate in the country, but we have the third highest incarceration rate in the world. And and what that tells me is that if we really want to focus on that behavior that we think makes us unsafe and makes our families unsafe, that we can, we have a lot of room to move on sentencing around property crimes and certainly drug crimes. We're drug crimes. We could make misdemeanors. Um, and not affect public safety. When you start talking about sentencing reform, the encouraging thing is we have a lot of room to move, and I think that's something we should keep in mind.
4: Cliff Johnson, director of the MacArthur Justice Center, University of Mississippi School of Law. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, as always. Appreciate it.
2: Coming up, the William Winter Institute's Day of Racial Healing. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio
1: no matter if you use an app to start your car or still have a flip phone. Everyday Tech can decipher today's technology for tomorrow's solutions. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or the MPB public media app.
2: This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Today marks the fourth annual National Day of Racial Healing, a day to address the historic and contemporary effects of racism. The William Winter Institute will present an afternoon of Mississippi-based programming today at the two Mississippi museums. Portia Espy is the executive director of the Winter Institute. She tells us it's a day to bring people together.
0: This is the National uh, Day of Racial Healing, and it was uh, started by the Kellogg Foundation, the W.K. Kellogg Foundation. Um, I think they had their actual first event in 2017, and this is a day to really kind of focus on race, race relations, um, uh, racial equity, and all that falls under the umbrella of racial equity, and to bring people together. It's not meant to be a divisive uh event it's meant to be something that lifts up the need to focus on racial equity and uh and, and how that looks in communities.
2: There are locations around the entire country that will be participating. That's exactly right. How long has it been in Mississippi, in Jackson, Mississippi?
0: We had our first event, I think, that first year, the inaugural year, Um, but it was a statewide effort. We had many organizations uh, across the state that were doing something in honor of uh, or in recognition of the day. And there are some organizations within the state that are going to be um, hosting events. So this will be our second time involved in the event.
2: The uh, location is apropos for the subject matter.
0: Tell our listeners think it where is. it will be. It will be at the two Mississippi museums uh, and we felt that that was the ideal place to have it because it talks about, you know, when you walk through uh, the museums and we feel it's a laboratory for uh, learning and understanding and for dialogue. Uh, you learn all about the history of Mississippi and it tells uh, the collective stories of all of the Mississippians who um, made Mississippi what it is today but it also focuses on the, um, the struggles during the civil rights era. Um, something that we don't think is, is taught as it should be in, in the school systems, but it's an opportunity for people from far and wide to learn about our unique history with regard to the civil rights movement in Mississippi. Racial healing, is that different than reconciliation? I think it is. I, I think it can be. But it's something personal to everyone. Uh, when we talk about racial healing and racial reconciliation, both of those are personal to people. Um, it, it means that someone has something that is not quite right that has happened, uh, that has left them feeling less than whole in their life or in the, the history of their family's lives. And what it takes to make that person feel whole or feel healed is different from one person to another, from one community to another. So this National Day of Racial Healing and what we have planned uh, answers a question that we get often, and that question is, what does this look like, racial healing? It's not a cookie-cutter approach. Uh, You're going to find, especially if you come to our event, you're going to find that there are people that we consider as practitioners because they are doing this work in their communities. They know the history of their community, uh, which is important. You have to know the history of your community to know what needs to be healed and how to approach the healing. Uh, At the William Winter Institute, we don't go into communities to prescriptively tell people this is what you need. You have to do A, B, C, and D. We work with them to build relationships first. We also help them to learn about the history of the community that they live in because oftentimes people don't know. Tell us about some of the panelists and why they were selected to participate. Well, we have um, um, the former uh, mayor of New Orleans and former lieutenant governor who's now president and CEO of a, a new organization called E Pluribus Unum, and that is Mitch Landrew. He felt that after Katrina, uh, people were not talking. Mitch Landrew felt like we need to, to create some opportunities for relationship building. We need to let people know what the shared history is of these communities that we're all now living in. And so that's exactly what he endeavored to do. And it was a successful venture, and, and it is still in in. Uh, in the works today there in New Orleans. They've done something that a lot of people thought was controversial. They decided that they wanted to remove certain monuments. Um, We also have um, Dr. Rhea Williams-Bishop, who heads up um, the Mississippi and New Orleans work for the Kellogg W.K. Kellogg Foundation. She has a a myriad of stories to be able to tell about the work that they're doing, not just in Mississippi and New Orleans, but across the entire U.S. that relates to this very same topic. And the people that we've invited to be on the panels have true examples that can be lifted up of how they are asking people to reach across the tracks and uh, get to know each other and bring their communities together.
2: And there are others, but but for time's sake, we'll... Uh... We'll let people find out for themselves. Tell okay. us how someone can attend. Is there a cost? Is there a reservation required?
0: Well, the good thing is there's not a cost. Uh, we will be starting really at noon with some light refreshments for people who just want to run in and didn't have a chance to to grab lunch. Uh, and we will begin the program at 1. Uh, in order to attend, you just simply need to go to our website and uh Sign up via Eventbrite. What is your website for people to RSVP? It's www.winterinstitute.org.
2: Portia Espy is the executive director of the William Winter Institute for Racial Reconciliation. Thank you very much for coming in. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPP Think Radio.